I just love this weekend of Advent because it's almost time. This weekend, we celebrate the fourth Sunday of Advent, and it's so close to the celebration of Jesus coming. It's almost time. Are you ready? Can't wait. I know we're, we're ready. Well, maybe we're ready, but it's coming and we're going to be ready. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we challenge each other and stretch our faith so that we can develop, we can have stronger confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we're going to explore that idea of confidence in God through the lens of Advent and some of the things that take place this time of the year. And yes, we're going to talk about the fourth Sunday of Advent because it really is almost time. Well, at our church, and I'm the pastor of Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, we celebrate Advent and we count down the Sundays by lighting the Advent candles. Many of you probably do that in your church. If you don't, consider it next time. Maybe your church would do that next year, or you could do it at home. It's just simply a way to keep track of and to help ourselves anticipate the coming of Jesus, the birth of Christ. And it also reminds us, because the second part of Advent is the anticipation of his second coming. So when I get to this Sunday of Advent, I remind myself, and we remind each other here, that it's almost time. And every year, I think I sound like a broken record, at least to myself. Every year, I remember vividly the life experience that that causes me to connect to this idea of anticipation. One of the anticipations we have during Advent is the arrival of the light. We talk about people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And so we anticipate that light arriving or a new day dawning, all of those kinds of images that the light has come into the world. Well, on this Sunday, when it's almost time, I remember the time in my life when I was anticipating the sunrise, the coming of the light. We lived in Oklahoma for several years, and we had very young children. And we were traveling from Oklahoma, from northeastern Oklahoma, northeast to Michigan for a visit. I can't remember the reason for the visit. I can't remember the time of the year. But we, in those days, decided that while it was difficult for us to drive all night, it was easier in some ways because the kids could sleep. And so we decided we'd set out at night and head out on that trip. And it was a long one. And I remember I was driving, it was, oh, 4.30 in the morning or so, I don't remember the exact time, maybe five, and I remember I was tired. You know, when you're young and you do dumb things, you don't realize sometimes what you're getting into. Well, I think I knew what I was getting into, but it didn't change the fact that I was tired. And I didn't want to wake anybody else up and trade drivers. I thought I needed to just keep going. And so I thought about that a little bit, and then I realized, you know, it's going to be better when the sun comes up. You know, everything's better when the sun comes up, isn't it? And so I began to to watch the sky. And as I was driving and as I was reminding myself that any moment now, I'd start to see the light of the sun. And as soon as I did, that would be a good thing. And I would feel better about the trip and about what we had done. And so for quite a while, longer than I wanted it to be, of course, because I was eager to see the sunrise, For quite a while, I drove in eager anticipation. I kept watching the sky. We were driving northeast, as I recall. And so we were were more or less driving toward the sunrise. And so I kept watching and waiting and hoping. 
And I didn't know at that time what time to expect sunrise. I know you can check and find that out. I didn't know. I was just assuming it was almost time. I kept watching, and I remember very clearly when I would begin to first see the dawning of the day, those the first light of morning. And it wasn't much. It was just a little bit, but it, it kind of perked me up, and I said, aha, it's coming. It's time. I can begin to see the light arriving. And sure enough, when the sun came up, things were better. I don't remember the rest of the trip, really. I just remember those, those minutes that I anticipated the sun coming up. And that's what I think about this time of year when we approach and celebrate the Sunday, the fourth Sunday of Advent, that here it is, it's almost time. And we know that we're going to celebrate the birth of Christ. We have confidence because we know the story. We know the history. And now we're going to anticipate his birth with an eye to the future, because one day he will return. And so we get both of those themes of Advent pulling us in that direction. So that's what we want to think about this fourth Sunday of Advent. And specifically at our church, we, we do a, a special service on the fourth Sunday of Advent. We've been doing it for quite a number of years. When I first did it one year, I thought, well, it might be a little risk. I'm not sure people will like this idea. Well, I got good feedback. And so we've been doing it every year on the fourth Sunday of Advent. We've been patterning a service after the idea that came to us from King's College Chapel in Cambridge, England. Now, this service was started in 1918. They decided to have a Christmas Eve service in 1918. And the gentleman who was the equivalent of the pastor who had the responsibility for the services, they call him the Dean of King's. He had an idea that at that time, they needed a little bit more imaginative worship, a little creative approach to worship. Now, I know by our standards today, when I explain the, the service to you a little bit more, we'll think that sounds pretty formal and not really very innovative or imaginative, but in those days it was. And so he, he put together this Christmas Eve service that they called a Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols. And he put that together as a, as a way to add a little extra imagination to the worship life of the people. And they conducted that first service in 1918. They, they did, they did um, identify the scripture readings. They called lessons, nine lessons. You may not be familiar with referring to scripture readings as lessons. I remember when I was a kid, I would sometimes hear the pastor talk about the scripture lesson for today is, and then he would read a scripture that was related to his sermon. So they devised this service, this festival of nine lessons and carols for Christmas Eve. They revised it a little bit the next year in 1919, rearranging a few things. And they started opening the service with a hymn, Once in Royal David's City. Uh, you might be familiar with that. And, and I read one place about how they did that. And I don't know if they still do it this way, but they did for a while. That that opening hymn, they would sing one stanza of it. And it was sung by a selected member of the choir. And they did it in a rather unique way. The uh, choir master would prepare several of the singers to be the soloist for, for that one stanza of Once in Royal David's City. And they would prepare it, and they were pl planning to sing it a cappella, unaccompanied, no, no instrumental accompaniment. The problem or the curious thing about that, the interesting thing about that is that no one knew which 
singer was going to be selected to sing that one stanza until the time of the service. And so these two or three or however many they had prepared had to be ready at a moment's notice to be selected to sing that stanza. And true enough, just as the service was starting, the choir master would choose the one, and then that singer would begin the service a cappella, singing the first stanza of Once in Royal David City. Well, the service continued and has been continuous all these years since then. It was broadcast on the BBC starting in 1928, and that's been pretty well continuous except for one year in there. They even conducted the service, the Festival of Lessons and Carols during the Second World War. There was a time during that war that the glass had been removed from the chapel and there was no heat in the chapel, but they still had the service. It's remarkable how, how enduring this service has been. And today you can listen to that service or a recording of that service, the Festival of Lessons and Carols, that comes to us from King's College Chapel in Cambridge. Well, it didn't just stay at King's College. The idea of the service has really spread around the world. And there are many adaptations of the service in many different places. Regularly, the music has changed. The only thing that's really stayed the same has been the scripture readings and the order of those scripture readings. Other places around the world, they've adapted the service in, in the ways that suited them, and I suppose continued the idea of having imaginative worship. And that's what we've done. We, we use the, tr the traditional or the standard, the, the scripture readings that were started way back in 1918, revised in 1919. We use all those scripture readings, but then we sometimes present them in creative ways, and we use different music along the way, things that we like, that we choose to. We don't use the same ones every year. We, we change from year to year, but every Sunday on the fourth Sunday of Advent, we have the festival of nine lessons and carols. Sometimes it's shortened to say festival of lessons and carols. So what I thought we would do today is we would use that as a way to continue our thinking about the coming of Jesus. You know, we've talked in previous weeks we talked about the when was Jesus born, not the specific year, but the time of year. And we recognize that December 25th was largely an arbitrary choice. Works fine. No reason to change it. I wouldn't suggest changing it. We, we have made the Christian year work very well and telling the story of Jesus works very well doing it this way. But we know that it wasn't December 25th. And I suggested a couple of weeks ago on this program that we consider the evidence, and, and I believe the evidence points strongly to that Jesus was born in September during the, the Feast of Tabernacles. And there are some reasons for that. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. You may remember that. So we, we kind of know that Jesus was born sometime in September, no exact date. It's impossible to know that. That's been lost to history if we ever really knew it. And, and if it was ever really tracked, we don't know that. But we also talked about the where was, was Jesus born. And of course, we often talk about Bethlehem. But I also suggested that we think a little bit more in terms of the Bethlehem concept referring to that area of Bethlehem, not just a specific city or city limits the way we think of them today, 
but that Jesus was born in Bethlehem, surely, but more specifically in a watchtower of the flock that we transliterate from the Hebrew named Migdoleter. And that was the place that sacrificial lambs were born so that the flocks that were kept to provide lambs for sacrifice at the temple just up the road in Jerusalem were cared for there and, and kept perfect. And they were, they were wrapped in strips of cloth, the way it's described that Jesus was, and they were kept in a manger so they could be protected and not harm themselves, because if they were harmed and they were no longer perfect, then they weren't acceptable for sacrifice. And so I suggested that we need to consider the evidence that it's very strong and compelling that Jesus was born specifically in the watchtower of the flock or Migdoleter. So we talked about the when, we talked about the where, and in really a good way, a creative way, a quite comprehensive way, the Festival of Lessons and Carols tells us the why of Jesus coming. And so what I'd like to do with us today is I'd like to read the lessons, the scripture lessons from the service and talk about them a little bit and help us get the scope of the story that talks about the why Jesus came. And really, we have quite compelling evidence for the why from the very first lesson that we're going to read. So let's get started. The first lesson in the Festival of Lessons and Carols comes from Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 19. Now, to be sure, in all of these lessons, they don't always tell the whole story that's related to the lesson, okay? There are things that happened before and after that are in the Genesis record, for example, in this one. We don't have all those details, but we have enough to remind us of what was going on and to help us begin to grasp the scope of what God is up to. So in the first lesson, Genesis 3, verses 8 through 19, we'll, we'll discover some very important things. And just so you'll know, I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It'll probably sound different than the one you use, unless you use the New Living Translation. But I like it a lot, and it's very, very readable and understandable, and I hope you'll find benefit from it. And perhaps if you're not familiar with it, maybe the way that this English translation says it will will ring a bell for you in a way you hadn't had before. Maybe it'll help you with your understanding or insights that you really, you really never considered before now. So let's read together. If you have your Bible and you want to follow along, Genesis 3, chapter 8, or I'm sorry, Genesis chapter 3, verse 8 through 19. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, where are you? He replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. Who told you that you were naked? The Lord God asked. Have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? The man replied, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and, and I ate it. Then the Lord God asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me, she replied. That's, that's why I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all animals, domestic and wild. You will crawl on your belly, groveling in the dust as long as you live. 
and I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Then he said to the woman, I will sharpen the pain of your pregnancy and in pain you will give birth. And you will desire to control your husband, but he will rule over you. And to the man, he said, since you listened to your wife and ate from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat, the ground is cursed because of you. All your life, you will struggle to scratch a living from it. It will grow thorns and thistles for you, though you will eat of its grains. By the sweat of your brow, you will have food to eat until you return to the ground from which you were made. For you were made from dust, and to dust you will return. A lot of things we learn from Genesis chapter 3, and a lot of things we learn from these verses. You probably put the ideas together already that God had said to, to Adam and Eve, identified here as the man and the woman, he had said to them, the garden is yours, you can eat of all of the trees except one. One is off limits. I I'm telling you not to eat it. And sure enough, what happened was that they listened to the serpent. They were deceived and they ate. We call their sin of disobeying God. We call that sin original sin. That's when that's the moment. That's the time that sin entered the world. Before that time, there had been no sin, but it entered the world with Adam and Eve. And right away now we understand we begin to understand the why of Jesus coming. Now, some people have described this concept of original sin as the great good news. Well, I think we can understand why they would say that. It sounds a little weird to call the time sin entered the world good news, but it does explain a lot, and it does help us make sense of, of the problems of our world, that they all started because people didn't listen to what God said, they thought they knew better, they believed somebody else, and they didn't honor God's command. The great good news is we understand what happened, but we also begin to understand from, from this opening story in Genesis, Genesis chapter 3, that God had decided he would send someone to help. Yes, there were consequences for, for the man and the woman, because they had done this, and he outlines them in verses 16 through 19. But there's also the promise that points to the, the solution that God would provide, because now we know the problem, and now we know the reason that Jesus had to come. Verse 15 says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. Now he's speaking to the serpent there, so there's going to be hostility between the serpent and the woman and her offspring. And then the scriptures tell us something really interesting and specific. And I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. So right away in one verse, God is describing one of the descendants of the first couple and it says, he, this descendant, will strike your head, referring to the serpent. And it says, you, referring to the ser serpent, will strike his heel. Now, that's a very interesting, very interesting statement. And it points to the coming of a solution to the problem. And it says 
that Jesus, referring to the he, and, and we all understand that this is a messianic reference, referring to Jesus coming, Jesus will strike your head, and you, the serpent, will strike Jesus' heel. Now, here's what's great about that. Even in the beginning, God was saying, I will send Messiah, I will send Jesus, and he will deliver a fatal blow to sin. Because remember, it was the serpent that introduced this. He will deliver a fatal blow. He will strike your head. A blow to the head is almost always a fatal blow. And then it says, you will strike his heel. You will be a nuisance. Evil will be a nuisance and continue to be a problem. But one day, it will be taken care of. One day, the Messiah will strike the head of evil, and the problem will be solved. So we take great encouragement from the beginning that even in these few verses at the very beginning of the service, at the very beginning of the festival, that we now have hope that God is going to come and help us in the way we need it most. We could not help ourselves. He's going to come and help us. So the next lesson is then from Genesis chapter 22, verses 15 through 18. And I want to read those. And this is really a very small piece out of a larger story. But perhaps you'll remember the story when I read it. Genesis 22, starting with verse 15, completing at verse 18. Then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. This is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and have not withheld even your son, your only son, I swear by my own name that I will certainly bless you. I will multiply your descendants beyond number, like the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will conquer the cities of their enemies, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. Now, isn't that interesting? What's going on here? Well, as Genesis unfolds in the story of God reaching out to people, he invites Abraham to be his covenant partner, and Abraham agrees, and so they enter into covenant. And so now Abraham's descendants are people of the covenant. They are in a special relationship with God because of that covenant. And early on, God says to Abraham, you need to sacrifice your son, your only son to me. A, a, a striking thing for us to hear. A striking thing for us to think that Abraham would consider, but he obeyed. As the Bible tells the story, he didn't hesitate. He just went about his business and prepared to take Isaac, his only son, and offer him as a sacrifice. It's a really remarkable, remarkable expression of confidence in God. Talk about absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Abraham demonstrated it here because Isaac was the son of promise that God had promised as part of the covenant agreement that Abraham, even though he was well past and, and his wife was well past the age of childbearing, God had promised you will have a son. And so Isaac is that son, that one son in whom all of Abraham's hopes and dreams had been invested. And then God says, I want you to sacrifice him to me. And Abraham, with so much confidence in the trustworthiness of God, goes ahead and obeys God and offers him, begins to offer him as a sacrifice. God intervenes at the last moment and says, don't do it, Abraham. I know you have obeyed me. And here's the interesting thing out of these verses that I read. In verse 18, through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. 
all because you have obeyed me. So in Genesis, the first portion we read, we found out the problem because they did not obey God. And now God is saying that because Abraham obeyed him, all the earth will be blessed. Think about that. Isn't that stunning? When you're tempted to not obey God, it's helpful to remember that when you obey, there's the potential for blessing. Imagine Abraham. He had no idea that, that what he had done was going to result in all of the nations of the earth being blessed. But that's what God says in verse 18, all because Abraham obeyed him. Imagine the good that could come about all because you obey him. You see, the real struggle of sin almost always comes down to, do I want my way or do I want God's way? Do I think I know best or do I have confidence that God knows best? And here Abraham is saying, God knows best. And he acted on that and the whole earth has been blessed because Abraham obeyed. And Abraham started the line of people, the tribe of people, the people of God that resulted in the birth of Messiah. Well, before we take a break, let's squeeze one more of these lessons in so we can continue the story from Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. The government will rest on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. His government and his peace will never end. He will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. The passionate commitment of the Lord of Heaven's armies will make this happen. So here we have specific reference to a child being born, specific reference to Messiah coming. For a child is born to us, a son is given to us. And it's real interesting to, to me these days when we say we can't talk about government in church, that here it says specifically that the Messiah will have the government rest on his shoulders. Well, that's a pretty amazing thing. It says here specifically that his government and its peace will never end. That's an amazing thing because that's a real, real solid promise that his kingdom, his government will never end, and it will be characterized by peace and fairness and justice. And that's the kind of kingdom we want, a kingdom of peace and fairness and justice. How strident are the words these days? How strident are the voices these days that cry out for justice? We don't want to go down this road too far, but too often when they say justice, they really mean vengeance. But here God is promising that a ruler will come with fairness and justice. And he specifically references in Isaiah here that he will rule with fairness and justice from the throne of his ancestor David for all eternity. Well, all eternity is a long time. And wait a minute, what's he talking about? Ancestor David. Well, that was very significant to God's people because you may remember King David. He was one of the kings that, that came to the throne. He came to the throne following Saul, a result of Saul's disobedience and David's faithfulness, starting with uh, the battle there that, that resulted in Goliath being killed by the stone from David's sling. And David's kingdom, for all of the history of Israel, is recognized as the high point of the kingdom. He was the best king. Things were better for the people. He protected them from enemies. David was the guy. 
And so he was the one that they always thought of as the pinnacle, the best of times. And so now Isaiah is using that same connection, their same understanding about David to say, there will come someone else to the throne, and he will come to the same throne that David sat on, and he will rule, and he describes it in much the way that David did. Notice Isaiah says he'll be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All very vibrant, descriptive terms to, to describe a kingdom like the one that they all remembered from David, only even better because he will rule with fairness and justice. Its peace will never end. It'll, it'll be for all eternity. And that's the promise in Isaiah's words that points to the coming of Jesus many, 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 many years before that. But he says a child is born, a son is given, the government will rest on his shoulders. So that's a great promise. And that's what we anticipate when we look forward to Christmas. That's why it's such a good thing that it's almost here. And we begin to understand the why that God is up to. When sin entered the world and bad things resulted, the world was broken by sin. When Abraham obeyed God, and God says that the whole world will be blessed because of your obedience. Now Isaiah says, a child is going to be born. Messiah is coming. It's going to be remarkably good, better than you could imagine. And so we look forward to the coming of Messiah. We begin to understand the, the why that Jesus came. Well, we're going to continue this look at the Festival of Lessons and Carols. Right after the break, we're going to take a little bit for you to get a drink of water or take a breath. Don't go away, though. We're going to continue this with even more insight into the why Jesus came. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens. Hang in there. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Dr. Peter McCullough. If you go to HealthyCell.com, you can check out the technology, the products of Healthy Cell. These are very innovative products. They are a form of bio-nutraceuticals that are bioactive, and they come in a variety of categories. One is daily essentials, which are the bioactive multi and the vegan essentials. And then the next category is performance, and this is the REM sleep supplement. I've talked about it a lot. I think it's very effective, and I recommend it uh, for myself and for my family, but as well as my patients. I'm having great luck with this because it is such a terrific product with um, a blend of, I think, is what's needed for not only promoting sleep, but also getting quality sleep. And one gets quality sleep, then there's restfulness, and the next day is better, and then the next night is better, and it becomes a progressively positive cycle for the human body. And the next product in the performance category is focus and recall. Focus and recall. And I think that is the featured product that um, is coming into play for those with long COVID and brain fog that develops after COVID-19, the respiratory infection, but also after COVID-19 vaccination. And then finally, the main horse in healthy cell is the targeted support of immune super boost. Immune super boost. And what we have here is a series of products that really can toe the line for patients who are working their way through the COVID-19 pandemic. 
either at risk for COVID-19, have had COVID-19 and recovered, are in the post-COVID syndrome, which is now a diagnosis we put in the electronic medical record, and are suffering through a variety of manifestations of post-COVID syndrome. And then lastly, those who are in the throes of vaccine reactions of some sort, whether they be uh, acute serious vaccine reactions or the more common mild uh, prolonged vaccine reactions. We now know the spike protein lasts in the human body after the respiratory infection or after vaccination for up to 15 months. We had this breaking development uh, brought to you on America Out Loud Talk Radio with Dr. Bruce Patterson on a recent episode. So we know this is the case. And so we know if the Wuhan spike protein is in the human body for up to 15 months, it's going to cause damage. It's going to cause inflammation. It's going to set a whole variety of immune responses up working against our body and potentially damaging cells, tissues, uh, intercellular communication systems, and very importantly, influencing organ function. And here is where we need the maximum defense for the body, uh, the maximum and the most appropriate blend of micronutrients, uh, minerals, as well as vitamins to help the body get through this difficult time. So go to HealthyCell.com and check out the products and in the promotional code, use the term out loud for 20% off your first purchase. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. Welcome back to Faith Is, I'm Pastor Rick Stevens and we are working together, challenging each other to strengthen our confidence in the trustworthiness of God. And we've been going through the Festival of Lessons and Carols that started way back in 1918 and continues to this day and is, is adapted and used literally around the world in all kinds of settings. And we've been going through the scriptures from that, the lessons from that service, and trying to understand and put in perspective in a little different way what God is up to and the why of Jesus coming. And before we continue with that, though, I want to make sure I remember to tell you a couple of things that I think are really important. First of all, I really want to encourage you, if you haven't listened to Dr. Peter McCullough and the McCullough Report on this network, I want to encourage you to do that. We live in a time when there's a lot of information out there about this coronavirus, and many of us are just concerned about who's going to tell us the truth. And I've listened to Dr. McCullough, and I believe he is very well informed very aware, well aware of the research that supports his conclusions. And if you're struggling with what's really going on and how it all fits together, I want to encourage you to listen to him. Now, you don't have, want to take medical advice from me, and I'm not suggesting that you, you take that, but you can listen to him and he will give you really good insights and you can talk to your doctor and you can make your own decision. But if you want somebody who's a straight shooter, who tells you the truth as he understands it and cites his reasons for believing it. It's not just his opinion. And he makes it clear when it is his opinion. Listen to the McCullough Report and Peter McCullum. And while we're at it, let me remind you, I guess we haven't really said that. I forgot to mention earlier in the program that, that next week on Christmas weekend, we're going to have a special two-hour edition of Faith Is. And I want to invite you to listen to that because we're going to talk about Christmas. We're going to talk about the Christmas story. We're going to talk about some of the ramifications of that. And we're going to include some musical selections that I've been looking around for. You probably aren't aware. I don't think I've mentioned this, that my background is in music. So there's a lot of Christmas music to choose from. I can never imagine choosing just a few, but I'm going to do that. And we'll have a Christmas special next weekend on this net network. I hope you can join us. It'll be a two hour special. 
complete with music and Christmas thoughts and inspiration and, and challenge that we can develop our faith and our confidence in God. Well, let's pick this up with the lessons of, and carols service, the festival of lessons and carols with the lessons we've been focusing on those. And we're going to look at the fourth lesson from Isaiah chapter 11, verses one through nine. Out of the stump of David's family will grow a shoot. Yes, a new branch bearing fruit from the old root and the spirit of the Lord will rest on him the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. He will delight in obeying the Lord. He will not judge by appearance nor make a decision based on hearsay. He will give justice to the poor and make fair decisions for the exploited. The earth will shake at the force of his word and one breath from his mouth will destroy the wicked. He will wear righteousness like a belt and truth like an undergarment. In that day, the wolf and the lamb will live together. The leopard will lie down with the baby goat. The calf and the yearling will be safe with the lion, and a little child will lead them all. The cow will graze near the bear. The cub and the calf will lie down together. The lion will eat hay like a cow. The baby will play safely near the hole of a cobra. Yes. A little child will put its hand in a nest of deadly snakes without harm. Nothing will hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For as the waters fill the sea, so the earth will be filled with people who know the Lord. Such amazing words from Isaiah. Such amazing things. Describing the coming of Messiah in such remarkably vivid and compelling language that, that here the Messiah will delight in obeying the Lord. Remember, this all started in Genesis when they didn't obey the Lord, and then Abraham did obey the Lord, and he blessed the whole world because of his obedience. God clearly said that, and now we find out that Messiah, clearly this is a, a passage referring to the coming of Jesus. We find out that Jesus will delight in obeying the Lord. There's mention again of justice and fairness, for the poor, nobody, nobody will be exploited anymore. It, it talks about how he, he will shake the earth with the force of his word and, and destroy the wicked. Now, that's all pointing toward a new and better day. It talks about how he will wear righteousness like a belt. I, I like to say of, of righteousness, he'll make all the wrongs right, and he'll have truth like an undergarment. See, he, he will focus on the truth, and, and we, the people of God, that's our gift to the world is the truth, and that's Messiah's gift. And then there's that list of the wolf and the lamb and the leopard and the baby goat and the baby in the nest of deadly snakes. You got to be kidding me. That stuff just doesn't happen, but they will. You see, God is going to heal the earth because he's going to get rid of evil and things will be like we could hardly imagine. But Isaiah gives us a glimpse. And that's why Messiah is coming. Messiah is coming to make things like they were supposed to be all along before sin entered the world. It goes so, so far to say that, that the earth will be filled with the people who know the Lord in the same way that waters fill the sea. Can you imagine that? Every person in that day will know the Lord. No wonder it's going to be quite a remarkable time. Very different than what we can imagine now. Very hopeful, very compelling. I, I want to be there, don't you? Of course we do. Absolutely. So now we go to the fifth lesson, and we go to Luke and begin the more familiar story 
of the arrival of Jesus from Luke chapter one, starting with verse 26 and going through verse 38. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, greetings, favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, uh, but how can this happen? I am a virgin. The angel replied, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son and is now in her sixth month. For the word of God will never fail. Mary responded, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. And then the angel left her. What a remarkable, remarkable encounter with the angel. And what a remarkable young lady was Mary. Don't be afraid, the angel said. And I think the angel would say that to us today. Because God said that over and over in the scriptures. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. She had found favor with God. And notice there's a reference to David and his kingdom. Notice there's a statement again that his kingdom will never end. Notice that it's the Holy Spirit. And finally, 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 notice this from Mary in verse 38. What does she say in response to the angel's message? Her, her mind must have been blown by this time, really. But she said, I am the Lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true. Can you imagine? It's a little bit reminds us of Abraham, doesn't it? Who was willing to do what God said. And she says, I am the Lord's servant. It's a real challenge for us, isn't it? Are we the Lord's servant in that same way? Are we as willing to allow God to use us in those ways? We admire Mary and we admire her a lot because she was faithful and she was willing, willing to follow the Lord and have him set the course of her life. How many of us are willing to let the Lord set the course of our life? How many of us maybe resisted that at one point? If you know you've resisted it, it's not too late to get back on track. Like Mary, say to the Lord, I am the Lord's servant. I will do whatever you ask me to do. May everything you have said about me come true. So then we move on to Luke chapter two. Again, familiar story, but maybe a little different words because you may not be used to the New Living Translation that I'm using, but it's still the story of the coming of Jesus. So let's pick it up from Luke chapter two, starting with verse one. At that time, the Roman emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. 
all returned to their own ancestral towns to register for this census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in snugly, pardon me, she wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. So now we have the picture that, that God has arranged things by having a Roman emperor decree a census, and that required Joseph to go back to, to Bethlehem. Notice the reference again to David. Notice the connection that God continually wants us to understand that the coming of Jesus is going to be glorious the way the kingdom was so good under King David. And it's, it's, it's though David's reference can't escape in all of this because God wants us to know that the promise is that it's going to be really, really good, just like it was really good under King David. And then notice also in verse 7 how she wrapped the newborn baby wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger. That's really important because that's an important clue that the angels will think about when they, or that the shepherds will think about, I should say, when the angels give them their message that's coming up in this next lesson, seventh lesson from Luke chapter two, starting with verse eight. That night, there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. Suddenly, the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. When the angels had returned to heaven, the shepherds said to each other, let's go to Bethlehem. Let's see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. They hurried to the village and found Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. So here's the story of the shepherds getting the word. And again, don't be afraid. I think that God so much wants us to hear that message. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. And then they hear the two significant clues that the baby will be wrapped in strips of cloth lying in a manger, which I think points them, along with other evidence, points them to the tower, the, the tower that's called the watchtower of the flock, Migdaletter. And the shepherds go and find the baby just as the angel described it. That's just remarkable. And it was quite an event. Well, okay, so now we're, we're going on to the, to the wise men. Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 through 12, says that there, there were some visitors from a long way away that came to find Jesus. And we read that story in Matthew chapter 2, starting with verse 1. Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea during the reign of King Herod. About that time, some wise men from eastern lands arrived in Jerusalem asking, Where is the newborn king of the Jews? We saw his star as it rose, and we have come to worship him. King Herod was deeply disturbed when he heard this, as was everyone in Jerusalem. 
He called a meeting of the leading priests and teachers of religious law and asked, where is the Messiah supposed to be born? In Bethlehem in Judea, they said, for this is what the prophet wrote. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not least among the ruling cities of Judah. For a ruler will come from you who will be the shepherd of my people Israel. Then Herod called for a private meeting with the wise men, and he learned from them the time when the star first appeared. Then he told them, go to Bethlehem and search carefully for the child. And when you find him, come back and tell me so that I can go and worship him too. After this interview, the wise men went their way, and the star they had seen in the east guided them to Bethlehem. It went ahead of them and stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were filled with joy. They entered the house and saw the child with his mother, Mary, and they bowed down and worshiped him. Then they opened their treasure chests and gave him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When it was time to leave, they returned to their own country by another route, for God had warned them in a dream not to return to Herod. What in the world is going on? Wise men coming to find Jesus? These guys who are far removed from the, the people of God, the covenant people of Abraham, they still knew something was up because they saw a star and they came looking for him, looking for a king. And it's very interesting that he's described by them as the king of the Jews. And it's also not surprising, but very important to notice that King Herod was upset when he heard this. Well, why would he be upset? Because this new baby was described as a king, and he was the king, and he didn't want anybody else being king. He wanted to stay being king, and so he was threatened. He felt his power being threatened by that. Well, they find out where the baby's to be born. They read from Micah chapter 2, verse 5. You may be familiar with that. That points to the area of Bethlehem. And then Herod has a private meeting with the wise men. He doesn't want anybody to know what he's going to tell them. And he tells him, go ahead and find the, the child, then come back and tell me so I can worship him too. Now, nobody really believes Herod was being honest with the wise men, and certainly the wise men picked up on that. But they went ahead to Bethlehem. It's interesting. I don't quite know how this worked, that the star guided them to the exact spot they needed to find the baby. Uh, but when they got there, they were filled with joy. Imagine these people who were far removed from the story of the coming of Messiah, filled with joy because they found him. And they went and worshiped him and they gave him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And a lot of talk goes on about the significance of those gifts, and I don't mean to diminish any of that. But what I want us to think about today is that they were really valuable gifts. And, and surely one of the things they may have done is help pay the expenses for Mary and Joseph and Jesus when they had to flee for their lives and go to Egypt. But I want you to think about what you give to Jesus. How valuable are the gifts you give? Do you really give something of value? Do you give the leftovers? Do you give the first fruits? You know, the Bible talks about how we give to God first, and then we figure out how to live on what's left. And my concern as a pastor, because I believe it's close to the heart of God, is that too many people live the life they want to live and figure out, well, I've got a little left over, I'll give that to God. And, and that's exactly upside down. And we need to figure out how are we going to, to honor God and give him what is of value so that we actually honor him. We shouldn't take God for granted. Everybody wants to think about God helping them, 
but how many people want to honor God by giving something that co that's costly and valuable to them and to God? And then last, of course, the, the wise men. Here we go again. They're obeying God. Have you picked that theme up through these scripture readings? The wise men are obeying God because Herod had said, come back and tell me. God warned them, don't do it. Don't go back to Herod. Go a different way. And we have some idea of the route they may have taken to, to get out of the countryside so that Herod wouldn't know they went, went the other way. But the key here is that they obeyed God. Notice what obedience does. Your obedience might have more significance than you know. And maybe it's time for us to think about what God is calling us to. And the ninth lesson then brings us to John chapter 1, verses 1 through 14. Maybe one of the best readings that we do during this time of the year. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, the Word already existed. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him, and nothing was created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness can never extinguish it. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. But to all who believed and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So the word became human and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Now we've come full circle, full circle from creation to the sin that entered the world when Adam and Eve thought they knew better than God and ate the forbidden fruit. We've traveled through the prophet's predictions, and we've heard the story of the birth of Jesus and the shepherds coming and the wise men coming, all the way to this final summary about the coming of Messiah. How Messiah existed before the world, how Messiah was there at creation and nothing was created except through him, and how he gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. And it's so bright, this light, that the darkness can never extinguish it. Talks about John the Baptist, so we'll know clearly what this passage is referring to, that John pointed to the Messiah, pointed to Jesus. The one, verse 9 says, who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. And then we come to what I sometimes think of as the saddest verses in the Bible. You know, the, the angels were the ones who brought glad tidings of great joy. And in verse 10 of John, it talks about Jesus came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. 
But to all who believed him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. And we started by talking about how sin entered the world and, and everything is now broken. You know, we live in a time that many people recognize that the world is broken. Things are not working. Things seem to be getting worse. Things we once depended upon fail us. People wonder what's happening, what's going to happen. Is there any hope? And that's what these scripture lessons remind us, that there really is hope. That's why we encourage ourselves, because Messiah came, and he will come again. He'll fix everything. His kingdom will never end. In truth, he's already started that revolution, you might say, that renovation, because he makes our lives new when we receive him. And the saddest thing about this part of the scriptures from John chapter 1 is that it says, his own people did not receive him. His own people, the people that knew about his coming, that were prepared to be the ones who ushered his coming into the world, did not receive him. Question today is, will you receive him? Derek Johnson wrote a song, and I've always remembered a couple of lines from it. It's from a long time ago. A gift is not a gift until it is received. And a truth is not a truth until it is believed. Today, right now, I want to encourage you to believe the truth. You know, that's the invitation Jesus gives. Change your life and believe the good news. Believe the truth. In a world of lies, you can believe him. He's the truth. And receive the gift, the gift of life that Messiah came to bring. Will you do that today? Will you do that during this Christmas season? Stop resisting. Start following. A gift is not a gift until it is received, and God is offering you a gift. A truth is not a truth until it is believed, and God has told you the truth. Believe the truth. Receive the gift. Well, so thanks so much for joining us today, for listening to our program and our Christmas celebration through the Festival of Nine Lessons and Carols. I hope you found it helpful. We do this for you, and the people of my church want it to benefit you. Join us next week when we come back with a two-hour Christmas special love to have you here. We'll have music, we'll have things from the scriptures, and we'll have more words of life. See you then.